Welcome to Disruptive CEO Nation, where company founders, entrepreneurs, and cutting-edge thinkers drop in from around the globe to share startup stories, insider insights, and hard-earned success lessons. Now, here's your host, a woman who mastered business by placing heels on the ground all over the world, having worked with and coached CEOs and senior leaders from over 90 countries, and who wants you to build your best business future, Allison K. Summers. Hey, Disruptive CEO Nation, you know how I end every episode with keep your eye on the future. And that is so important to me. So today we have a guest who's a futurologist and an innovation strategist. He's written his first book, The Intellectual Rage, his first business book, I should say. And he is the founder of Tempest Moto Group who does strategic advisory services. So we are heading over. He's actually in Sweden today. I think uh, he spends his time between Sweden and Bulgaria. Wonderful person you should add to your network. So welcome to the program, Eric Dromi. Eric, welcome to the program. Hey, Alison, pleasure. Hey, I'm just, it's such a, a treat to speak with you today. You were introduced to me from somebody that I really value in the network, Benjamin Talon. And tell our listeners, you know, what your work is as a futurologist and, and how long you've really um, put this as your banner in life. Um Start with, you know, I, I keep getting this question over and over again. What, what is, you know, what does a futurologist do? And uh, it took me a few years to narrow it down to a simple explanation. I try to help companies understand uh, potential futures that could happen and try to help them build the potential future that should happen from their own brand point of view. And there, there are many uh, trajectories that a brand can take but what is the most relevant relevant one for the brand, the brand promise and where the one brand wants to be. So that is what I, I try to do today. It's, it's not always easy because um, what could happen sometimes is much more shiny than what should happen. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, reality is, is when a company is able to actually understand the forces that can shape the future and reverse engineer it to what is their current uh, state of being, it's much easier to build towards that future and create um, a sustainable brand. Um, I also try to help companies a lot today where, uh, to, not, to, not to drown in the swamp of buzzwords and, and to try to make sense with everything that is going on today from, from chat GTP, GPT to, you know, the entire umbrella of AI to sustainability to climate. There is thousands of buzzwords over there and companies are just trying, you know, it's all bling bling for them. And But what is, you know, most relevant for them? And, and you cannot do that without understanding future trajectories and, and the stories that could happen and what's the stories that should happen. And the second part of your question is, you know, I, I always say, I'm, I'm dyslectic and dysgraphic and I needed to force myself, you know, born in the seventies. It wasn't like, you know, you had a test. You were just lazy. <laughs> so, uh, I, I taught myself how to, to read by um, picking up the two books from my parents' library. And one of them was Virgil Verne. And that's opened my horizon to, to technologies, to science fictions, to 
to potentials. So it's not something that you know, I'm always laughing about. Oh, take a course in futurology. It's not. It's not a course. It's it's not an education. It's 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 a lifestyle in the end of the day. So I was it was always part of me. I love this concept that there's somebody out there, you know, saying to businesses, you can't be looking just at short-term returns or short-term objectives all the time. And you can't be, as you said, after the next, you know, shiny thing, how you are looking at forces that can shape the future. And, you know, this opportunity that businesses could say, what's what could potentially happen? And how could we create this new space or be a part of this new space? It's very compelling, I I think. Hey, we, we shared with the audience that you have your this business book called The Intellectual Rage. And tell us about, if I were to pick this book up, some of the things I could expect to learn from it, gain from it. Um, funny enough, the, the book, instead of uh, starting with um, uh, the typical forward, uh, I created something that is called a uh, forewarning. Um, due to the simple reason that the book um, is full of profanities. It's written with a lot of love, but it's also <laughs> written with a lot of frustration. Um, I do ask people that if, you know, if they are sensitive, don't read this book, don't read it after you, you ate anything. And it's highly recommended to read it on a glass of whiskey or your favorite <laughs> drink. Um, and it's, it's more or less my journey through, you know, through the years, uh, through the corporate innovation reality. I mean, what makes innovation works and what doesn't make innovation work? These are the two questions that have always been in the back of my mind. And this book is uh, about what doesn't make innovation work. Where does innovation fail? Why does innovation fail? Uh, anything from, like I said, uh, you know, jumping into a swamp, swamp of buzzwords all the way to uh, sociopathic behavior in a corporate culture that's it doesn't just stop innovation, it's, it's becoming an anti-innovation uh, in the end of the day. Uh, it's about the lessons I learned from my journey in the corporate world. It's written from a very personal point of view, and it was more written as a pre-book to my passion project of um, what actually makes innovation works. I and mean, how can some leaders, business leaders, can create a culture of transformative innovation while others are simply not capable of understanding anything beyond modification and change. And take, take uh, Steve Jobs, for example. Uh, this is a guy that did everything against the Harvard Business School book. <laughs> I mean, he has been criticized on daily basis. There was not a single day that he didn't open the newspapers and read the negative things about Steve Jobs. What in his mind enabled him to filter all of the crap that was thrown at him and says, I stick to my way? Mm. You know, Elon Musk is the same, has the same personality, being criticized, being ridiculed on a daily basis. So what makes these great leaders great leaders? What makes them create a culture? And, and of course, the answer, hey, they're, all, they're all assholes. Okay, what are the qualities of an asshole? And, and I think we are not looking enough into understanding these type of questions in the corporate culture today. Mark, there's something, there's so much in there that I want to unpack. Um, I love this phrase, you know, culture of transformative innovation versus modification and change. 
And this concept of, I always say, you know, I love talking to company founders that are CEOs because they're the chief vision officers. And even in companies that I lead, even where I'm sitting today, you look around the room and you're like, why doesn't everybody get this? Why can't they all see this? Why, why can't they see this, this impact that's coming or why this modification might get us another couple months, but it's not going to get us years or decades of where we need to be or, or need to go. Um, and I think you're right when you talk about leaders and the grit of leaders who are trying to truly live in innovation and make change, it's astonishing that they don't get torn down um, by like what you just said. So what makes, what do you think makes those people really tick and be able to stick with this innovative thinking? I would say that you know, the first thing is that they understand that they, you know, the purpose of leadership is not about commanding the troops, it's about persuading them. Uh, leadership is not something that, you know, it's not the positions that you can, you are appointing, appointed to. It's the positions that you earn by those who are willing to follow you. Uh, most of the, you know, even so, Steve Jobs and uh, Elon Musk, they are uh, leaders. They were, Steve Jobs was, Elon Musk is a leader of, they were leaders of their own companies, but they had a group of followings that are willing to follow their visions. And this is not something that, you know, I haven't seen the CEO of an automotive company, except of Elon Musk here, that, you know, gets the coverage that Elon Musk is getting and everyone is tweeting what is being tweeted. I mean, they have a certain assertiveness inside of them. They understand it's about persuading the people, not commanding the people. And I think mm -hmm. that's that's the first the first quality they 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 have. I I also I, I also believe that they they know that with everything that they know, they know that they haven't even started to scratch the things that they don't know that they don't know. And they are driven by curiosity and the passions of discovery. And this is not, you know, I, I met plenty of directors, CEOs, and, and, you know, there is a trend lately on LinkedIn when you, when you browse companies, you see uh, innovation leader, marketing leader. I mean, who gave you the title leader that, you know, where did human resources start to, to put these, you know, <laughs> tickets called leaders? It, it's just ridiculous. But these are, you know, when you talk to people, suddenly they know everything. And um, I learned that, you know, if you are the smartest person in the room, you're definitely in the wrong room. And <laughs> it, it, agreed, it's, agreed with that. I mean, it's, it's with all of their assholeness, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Larry Ellison, you know, all of these guys always made sure that they are surrounded by much smarter people than themselves. They are, uh, they are very humble from an intellectual point of view. And people say, how can you call Elon Musk and Steve Jobs humble? But they are, they are intellectual, humble people. And if we just understand the power of being intellectual, humble, we will realize how much more knowledge we can absorb, absorb from the people that are surrounding us. I think that's, from my point of view, my, what makes them different. Of course, there are tons of other points, but these are the main points. 
let's jump topics and head over to technology. Um, before we pressed the record button, we were talking a little bit about human relationship with technology and how it uh, affects businesses and fits in our lives. Give us some wisdom on this topic or how you view our relationship with technology today. We live in a very unfortunate reality where, um, number one, we rather listen to other people's opinion or we prefer to listen to other people's opinion rather than jump into the data and come to our own conclusion. I think that's how the entire society is driven, but really the business reality. Um, technology was always there to extend our potential. I mean, it's very sad that when we talk about technology, we immediately jump to computers, processing power, chips, smartphones. I mean, we tend to forget that the axe was, it is actually the first technological tool we ever created. Without the simple things that is called an axe, we would have never had an iPhone today. We would have never pushed the boundaries of our development. So technology is not about digital. It's about a way to extend our potential. I don't see anything coming close today when, it, when you're looking into digital that is enable us to extend our potential. We became more and more slave to technologies around us. I mean, from you know, range anxiety on electric vehicles to battery anxiety, also, also range anxiety on smartphones to uh, having the need to constantly be connected to ignore the fact that technology is meant to be invisible, transparent. It should cater for our needs and wants when decision is required and we require itself, but always let us you know, explore and experience our wishes. We don't have this reality today. We, you know, companies, are fe they feel more and more compelled to jump into the latest bling bling toy that, you know, is being thrown around them. I think uh, OpenAI is the latest. Uh, it's the you know the, the the chat. It's it's the fastest growing consumer uh, application in history. No one is actually stopping and ask, hey, does it fit into our brand philosophy? And we end up in a in a reality where we take technology, we put it in the center, and we designed our philosophy around it rather than have a philosophy and try, try to develop mm -hmm. a technology around it. Few other companies that are capable of doing that today. I mean, Apple's in the day of Steve Jobs was constantly doing that. Um, Elon Musk is doing that very nice with Tesla and SpaceX. But most of the companies, no, they find the technology and then they build their strategy and philosophy around it. That's a wrong way. That is not a sustainable, of, sustainable way of building a business. No, absolutely not. Let's flip over to uh, Tempest Moto Group, the, the, your advisory services firm. Um, give us a little idea of the types of clients that come to you, some of the problems that they have, how you work in partnership with them. We, um, it, it, took, it, took, uh, it took us many years to realize one of the biggest problems that exists today is, you know, Companies are outsourcing to consultancy companies and agencies around them their biggest important assets. It's their brain power. I mean, even in my book, I'm talking about the fact that I've seen marketing 
departments over and over again, going to agencies and asking them that question. Tell us what do you need to do? If I'm the CEO of a company that my marketing organization needs to go to an agency to ask them, tell us what we need to do, why do I actually employing and marketing people in my organization? Right? Agencies are there to execute on the power knowledge of the people I actually hired and surrounded myself with. Um, and, and consultancy, the consultancy model, um, well, miserably failed for the years. And, and I think the McKinsey, Boston Consultants Group, and the rest of the grant created a, a brilliant business model, but it's a business model for them, not for their client. And they are trying to impose that business model on their client. We decided to step away from the traditional consultancy and focusing as an advisory board as a, a service. A, you know, a company, a CEO usually will surround themselves with, the, the, you have the boards of directors, which they have like their legal uh, responsibilities for the company. And a CEO will um, more often in the US than in Europe these days will surround himself or herself with a, a bunch of advisors. The challenge with that it's the same advisors over and over again, regardless on the challenge, on the next quarter challenge that the company is um, facing. And we ask, what if we can create a revolving table of knights, of, of top-notch advisors that can assign to a company per their specific challenge, not to have, you know, I was sitting on an advisory board of uh, Entity Innovation Institute, and I came from a technology point of view. I mean, I, I never understood why the CEO of the company needed my advice when it comes to marketing and sales. I was the wrong person, but there was not anyone on marketing and sales on the advisory board. And the idea is to create this, you know, rotating talent that can cater for the company's most burning challenges and do it in a way that build education in the company, close the gap that the leaders has in their decision-making and not outsource these decisions to consultancies around it. Um, we try to work mainly with CEOs and executives and uh, uh, board members. Um, uh, so far, we miserably failed of attaching ourselves to few governments, even so policy is one of the most burning things that government, you know, we, we, we need to cater for right now. Um, but uh, the geopolitical swamp is an extremely um, interesting beast <laughs> these days. <laughs> um, um, that's in the end of the day what we try to do. We try to help companies understand that they should never outsource brain powers. They should use us to, um, we, we like to put it in three phases. It's um, to ideate, to calibrate, and to educate. So let's do the ideations. Let's understand what are the real challenges. And you cannot, most companies that you know, I've worked with, they're, they're focusing on their next quarter, which I understand. I really mm -hmm. understand. I 100% understand. But these companies are seeing, um, they completely uh, misread the Norton balance, you know, the Norton Kaplan balance, balance scorecard. And it, it's there to enable them to, not to constantly focus on the next quarter, but to make sure that each quarter leads to the next quarter in a very successful way. So how can we help them understand what are the biggest problems that you know, generated the fires and create all of this smoke around? How can we calibrate the current operations to introduce new 
I mean, I hate to deal with efficiency models. I said, this is where really you can take McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group. They can focus excellent on efficiency models. But let's create a new productivity layer in the company. And that is a more strategic narrative that we like to work with. And then, okay, what are the educations that needs to happen? How do, you know, I, I always talk about there is a very old diagram comparing the, um, the telephone to Angry Birds. It says it took the telephone, I think, I think it was like 50 years or 75 years to reach 50 million users, but Angry Birds reached to the same amount of users in like 32 days. I mean, that's, wow, it sounds fantastic, but it's the wrong type of comparisons because without the telephone, you wouldn't have had the, you know, the rest of the infrastructure. So the internet would have never been born and Angry Birds would have never been there. Angry Birds is a digital tool. It's spread for digital means. By the telephone, you needed blood, sweat, and tears. You needed people to dig. You needed manual laborers to reach this amount of people. It's the wrong conspiracies. The right questions that we need to ask is that we had 75 years or 50 years to understand the economic impact of a technology that is called telephone. How many companies today exist out there that has the policies and infrastructure to understand the economic impact of a technology that reached 50 million users in only 30 days? Yeah. And, and that is the education gaps that we, we're helping companies to, to close, to understand. Ark, I want to jump. We're coming close to our time, but you do a lot of uh, keynotes and master classes. If, if somebody said, hey, I really value some of the things that Ark has said, but I'm not in a world where we can you know, hire services from Tempest Modu, but maybe they'd be interested in a, a keynote or a masterclass. What are some things that people can find when they connect with you? And, um, I have my, I've been working as a keynote speaker uh, for, I don't know how many years right now. Uh, on parallel to uh, Tempest Motu, I do have um, a Black Swan Theater. It's the, um, the keynote and masterclasses and workshops that uh, I offer with a very small team, uh, including my wife. I always wanted to do something with my wife. So we are doing, we're, we're actually doing these things together. And um, uh, if anyone is interested in the keynote, and when I'm, I'm, every six months I'm changing the, the topics just to be uh, relevant. I hate to repeat myself. I will never do the same keynote twice because I'm getting bored. And if I'm bored, I'm not. <laughs> productive. Um, but I do help. Uh, my main focus right now is really to help companies to understand the meaning of uh, you know, crossing the, the Rubicon, better understand how technologies can affect their businesses. Um, the second one is how do you actually navigate the future? What are the mega trends that are going to build the, uh, the future uh, around us? And the last thing is, you know, how do we plan for the day after tomorrow? I think one of the biggest challenges that I see today is uh, and that's including companies like uh, Apple, Google, um, uh, Pfizer, and the rest of the gang, the rest of the Fortune 100 is diffusion of innovation. Everyone is still talking about um, technology transfer. I don't think that is a problem. It's the diffusion of innovations that we don't understand. Really uh, being able to cater to how innovation spreads through certain cultures, societal narratives. How can the diffusion of innovations, how can you actually manipulated to have the preferred outcome results for your brand. That's what most companies don't get today. So um, anyone can just, you know, 
go to Black Swan Theater, see what we do, and you know, contact us. Well, Ark, it's been a delight to speak with you. As I said to my listeners at the beginning, everybody should find you on LinkedIn, have you be a part of their network, and you know, reach out to you if if you can be of service to them. Ark, I always like to ask my guests, if we came back and talked to you in two or three years, what's the vision? What's the dream? What would be the next thing on your list? Um, I'm actually right now started to put a treatment for a, a documentary uh, that is called The Innovation Matrix, which is, you know, I don't want just to write a book about what makes innovation works. You know, the idea is to create uh, an interactive blueprint manual that uh, CEOs and students, and, 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 and there is nothing in the middle. It's neither students or CEOs can actually go and dive into, have a 360 perspective of what makes innovation works. And it would be great to have a, imagine that we can put Elon Musk in an MRI, MRI machine and ask him to come up with ideas and see which part of these brains are actually powering up at the moment. And if he's listening to that, you know, contact us. We would like to put you in an MRI machine. <laughs> but that's what I want to be behind me in two years, to, to be able to, to finish this documentary and, and to, to really create this blueprint of understanding of what makes innovation work. Ark, thank you so much. I, I love that ambition and goal because we all know I've sat in presentations where you get one slide and they're like, this is how you innovate. And it's on a slide and you're like, no, this is not how you how you innovate. So I think what you're trying to put out into the world in this next phase in this documentary is absolutely needed, wonderful and beautiful. Hey, to our listeners, if Ark said something that you think somebody else needs to hear, please pass along a copy of this episode and take a look online for his book, The Intellectual Rage. Hey, um, until we speak again, keep your eye on the future and always be disruptive. Ark, thank you again for being a guest. My pleasure, Alison. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.